Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We have come to this fourth Sunday of Advent, this season of preparation where we've been thinking about different aspects of our faith and how we prepare for Christmas and this great action of God. In this sermon series, we've been exploring how we experience the awe of God and how that can make us seem rather odd when we follow God's lead. I mean, it is an odd story. It's rather strange Dr. Kroll raised some of those thoughts for us in the prayer, the place, the couple, nothing special about any of that, out of the way, in a barn or stable, in a manger, an unknown couple of people, an unplanned pregnancy. It's a strange story, and yet the gospel says God is at work in all of it. The scholars tell us that back at this point in history, many marriages were arranged. Often, the arrangement would be made when children were very young. It was called an engagement until they came to the time of where they were ready to be together in a sense. When they came of age, they had a period of a year which was called the betrothal. Then after that year, if everything went fine, then would come the actual marriage. It seems like they're in this betrothal period where they're coming to know each other that we find the story we've read today from Matthew. If things didn't work out during that year of the people getting to know each other, then it could be annulled. But they would have to go through the period of divorce. They would have to go through that process. They took this so very seriously. Well, here they are getting to know each other. And Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. He thinks she has chosen another. I've made a mistake. This isn't going to work. And he decides that he's going to move aside until verse 20. And Matthew records, But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph, it's not what you think. Indeed, it's the activity of God, that God is at work in your life and in Mary's life. You see, Joseph had his plan, but then God acted, and that changed everything. 
Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had a plan. You're going in one direction, and then God acted. Maybe you've been going in one direction, and you felt like God was moving you or leading you to move in another direction. Have you ever had that experience where you're just going through your life, you think you know where you're going, you have the plan, and then somehow God's Spirit speaks to your spirit, and you realize you need to go a different direction? That's what happened to Joseph. Sometimes we're going along in our lives like that. Everything's going fine, and then things begin to go in a direction that we did not expect, that we did not plan, and we begin to lose hope when things are not turning out the way that we had hoped or we had planned or we had envisioned. Sometimes we lose hope. I told you a couple of weeks ago that I went to see the movie 12 Years a Slave, a true story about an African-American man who lived in the North, an educated businessman. He was kidnapped and then sold into slavery in the South. It, It was a tragic and terrible and horrible story. I told you about his life then, but it was also about the lives of these other slaves that Solomon, the main character, comes to know. One woman in particular he becomes friends with on one of the plantations where he is serving as a slave. The slave master begins to take special attention, pay special attention to this young woman, more attention than she wanted, inappropriate attention, so much so that it created jealousy in the slave master's wife, so she treats this woman mercilessly. In one particular scene, she gets so angry and she's so jealous that they whip this woman who's tied to a post until her back and her flesh is just shredded. She survives that night. She's in her cabin. She wants to die. She is in such desperate situation. After everyone else is asleep, she crawls over to Solomon and wakes him up. She says, I need your help. He said, what do you need? She said, go to the water's edge with me and hold me under water until I stop breathing. Solomon says, it's, it's too much. You're asking too much of me. I can't do that. She loses all hope. When all the available data And all of her experience, or at least her most immediate experience, suggests to her that there is no hope. There is no reason to hope. It's hard to believe in God then. It's hard to believe that God loves you and God is coming to you. It's hard to believe this gospel story is really true when you're in that kind of situation and you think all hope is lost. But this gospel suggests that never... Never is all lost. This gospel says that God can bring life out of death, that God can bring good out of evil, and that God can bring hope in the face of hopelessness. In fact, Matthew tells us that God is at work at this time in history when the Romans were all powerful. They're the ones who are running things. It's not a good time for Jews. They are an oppressed people that God, even in the midst of those circumstances, is working through this poor young Jewish couple not only to bring them hope, but to bring hope to the entire world. Joseph lost hope in the midst of that when he thought that 
Mary had chosen another, when he thought she had made some other choices besides being with him. But then the most amazing thing in the story happens. In verse 24, Matthew records, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. I find that kind of faith amazing. I mean, it's remarkable. All the data would suggest to Joseph that he should go this way. He had a plan. He was resolved to do it. But in the midst of that, he heard the contrary voice of God. And when he awoke from sleep, he followed the command. Joseph did what God prompted him to do. That is trust. That is obedience. That is a man experiencing new hope in his life. When all the available data would suggest otherwise, Joseph was able to hear the promptings of God and respond as God was leading him. John Maxwell's company sent me a story last week. It was about an author I had never heard of. Maybe some of you have heard of Dominique LaPierre. Apparently, he's a best-selling French novelist and has written any number of bestsellers. The story told about the time in LaPierre's life that he decided he wanted to write a story that was set in India, but he wanted to travel in style. He had already had several books do well, so he had some money. So he ordered a brand-new Rolls-Royce, a silver cloud, had it shipped over to India so he could ride around in luxury as he investigated the subcontinent to write his book. Well, he did so, and he wrote his book, and it came out to rave reviews, and it became a bestseller. As a result of that, he got a very nice royalty check. He was feeling some gratitude and some indebtedness to the people of India. He decided he would make some kind of charitable gift. But he wasn't really that familiar with what was going on there. But he'd heard of this woman, Mother Teresa, in Calcutta. He arranged to go visit her. He went to see her and said he wanted to make a donation. She said, well, not for me, but let me introduce you to somebody. James Stevens, my friend. He's an Englishman. He's working with children in the slums who are suffering from leprosy. So she introduces LaPierre to James Stevens. He tells him about the work he's doing. He shows him the children with whom he is working. And LaPierre is moved beyond words. He says, not only will I make this gift, but I'm prepared to give you 50% of all my other royalty checks. And he begins to finance this ministry, trying to educate children trying to cure them from leprosy. They start a home called Resurrection Home. To date, they have cured 9,000 children of leprosy. They have brought a whole new kind of hope to that part of the world. LaPierre went to India planning to experience the heights of luxury. But he left India with a passion and a commitment to serve those in the depths of poverty. God can bring hope in the face of hopelessness. LaPierre, now on his business cards, has 
a sentence on the back that comes from an Indian poem that he says sums up what he experienced while he was in India. I've put it in your outline. This is what it says. All that is not given is lost. All that is not given is lost. Have you ever noticed how often that God's work intersects the lives of the poor, sometimes bringing hope to the poor, sometimes bringing hope to the rest of us through the poor. Mary and Joseph were from a humble beginnings. You could say they were poor. Jesus identified himself with the poor, said part of his mission was to bring good news to the poor, spent a good deal of his life living around the poor, eating and drinking and teaching with the poor. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, spent a good deal of his ministry as well with the poor. A few years ago, the United Methodist denomination is trying to tighten their focus in terms of ministry we're involved in. They chose four priorities. One of the top four stated that we wanted to be engaged in ministry with the poor. It happens in so many different kinds of ways. Let me give you a few examples. In Greenville, South Carolina, one of our United Methodist Church districts has decided that every church will partner with at least one family in material poverty and walk with them long enough to help them break the cycle of poverty. Oh, it means some financial aid, but more than that, it means building a relationship helping them develop a plan to take steps to break this cycle of poverty in which they are caught. They're bringing hope anew to their part of the world. Or it happened through one of our churches in Washington, D.C. just a few weeks ago when the government shut down. Lots of workers were furloughed. One church knew they had a number of VISTA workers who are paid at the poverty level while they're working with people trying to break out of poverty. They knew they were on such a tight budget, such a small financial margin that they would need help. They started a new ministry with meals and support groups, but they were surprised it wasn't only the VISTA workers who came, workers from the Pentagon, workers from all different